0: and the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, give me understanding that I may live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, Paul and Mark examine how the serpent led Eve to doubt God's warning that if she and Adam ate from the forbidden tree, then they would die. They also discuss how they knew enough about God and his love for them that they should not have believed the serpent's lies. Let's listen in.
1: Mark, let's do a little recap. Last time, we examined God's prohibition that Adam and Eve not eat from the forbidden tree. And you took us to the end of the Bible in Revelation to show us God's purpose in creating the world, that is, to gather a bride, the church, for his son, Jesus Christ. And you said that the Lord God invited our first parents into a marriage-like relationship with himself, where they would freely choose to love him above everything and anyone else. That joyous covenant with Eve at the end of chapter two of Genesis was to foreshadow the kind of relationship they were to choose to have with their God. But that didn't happen. They disobeyed God's command not to eat from the forbidden tree. That's right, Paul. And their disobedience
2: was prompted by the serpent who appears at the beginning of Genesis 3. He tempted them to ignore God's warning that if they ate from that tree, then they would die. So they ate from it, and they found out disastrously that God had told the truth. By that act of disobedience, human suffering and death entered our world. Our task in this episode, Paul, is to probe how the servant worked and to try to understand why our first parents made their disastrous choice. And from this, we'll have some lessons to draw concerning ourselves and our choices. All right, let's get started. An unexpected, wily character appears in the fateful temptation scene at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 3. And he's making an odd claim. Hmm. Hebrew grammar suggests that the serpent was not merely asking a question about what God had said. As unfortunately, almost all of the English versions translate it. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Interesting. E.A. Spicer comments, the serpent is not asking a question. He is deliberately distorting a fact. In his craftiness, he was probably either feigning surprise and indignation at what God was requiring of our first parents, or else he was feigning compassion and sympathy for them. Indeed, to think that God has forbidden you to eat from any tree in the garden.
1: Interesting. So the serpent actually makes God's command more restrictive than it actually was.
2: Yes, and that portrayed God as a miserly, Uh prohibitive God who was inflicting a monstrous deprivation, those are Blochet's words, Mm -hmm. who was inflicting a monstrous deprivation on the first human beings. It prompted Eve immediately to correct the serpent, probably in order to defend God's goodness. Mm -hmm. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die.
1: Yeah, and that seems to be to Eve's credit, right? Well, sort of. Uh
2: Eve was only getting it partially right. The serpent's quick retort to Eve's correction shows that he knew exactly what the Lord God's original command to Adam had been. Eve... Had left out the certainly in God's warning to Adam that if he ate Mm. from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would certainly die. In disputing God's warning, the serpent put it back in. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, thus directly contradicting God. Mm. Mm -hmm. This was, as Collins comments, an attempt to undermine the relationship of trust that is the engine of obedience between God and human beings.
1: Yeah, that sounds right. It sounds like Satan wanted to create create doubt in Eve's mind. Maybe doubt about the command, maybe, maybe doubt about God. It sounds, it's very gossipy.
2: It is, it is. And there are several points about which the serpent sought to create doubt. First of all, he omitted the reference to God's personal covenantal name. That is, in our translations, Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh. That personal covenantal name runs throughout Genesis 2 and 3 Hmm. in order to emphasize God's personal relationship with Adam and Eve. As Victor Hamilton notes, the Bible's first conversation about God is about Elohim, which is God's generic name, not Yahweh. Hmm, hmm. As I noted in When the Stars Disappear, the psalmist avoided this kind of generic talk about God because it undercuts the truth that those who know Yahweh trust him and address him directly as their loving Lord.
1: Yeah, and by not referencing God's covenantal name, he makes God impersonal to Eve. So the serpent wants God to be a kind of mouthpiece, just a mere rule giver.
2: Yes, yes. Here's the second way that he was seeking to create doubt. He drew Eve's attention away from God's actual words to God's supposed inner thoughts. Implicit here, Hamilton observes, is the suggestion that the serpent knows God better than the woman does, for he can penetrate God's mind and claim to know what God knows. Thirdly, he falsely insinuated that this distant deity had selfish reasons for wanting our first parents not to eat from the tree. God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil, as he says Mm -hmm. in verse 5 of chapter 3. So he was suggesting that if Adam and Eve ate from this tree, they would become creatures who, by a change in their nature from that eating, would dim God's glory.
1: Yeah, it sounds so familiar. I mean, Mark, don't we hear accusations about God like this all the time? I mean, people complain, well, he's an impersonal, Role giver, or perhaps we even feel like he's petty, perhaps he's he's even jealous of us and he's arbitrary. And from what you're saying, it sounds like these critiques go all the way back to the garden.
2: Yes, yes, and we need to realize how believing a lie like this can alter our whole way of perceiving things. Mm-hmm. As Kidner notes, this lie of the serpents was big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. Hmm, Right. We have all encountered lies like this. Think of when we were in middle school or high school, Paul, and some of our peers Mm -hmm. might have done great damage to us or to others by falsely claiming that our parents were too strict.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Again, if you think of the rampant polarization in the United States today, it comes from the different parties believing remarkably different alleged truths.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
2: So believing lies like these can warp our whole approach to life. If Eve were to believe this one, then she would begin to regard her kind creator, sustainer, and benefactor as her rival and enemy. As Kidner puts it, the serpent, in his craftiness, was tempting her to take what would be, in fact, a suicidal plunge as, instead, a leap into life.
1: Wow. Thank you for saying that. It seems to me to be a very important point. And it's very easy for us, I think, to buy into what Eve was buying into, to see God as rival Right. Not loving creator, but enemy, an obstacle to what we consider to be true happiness. But it sounds like you're trying to emphasize, along with Moses here, that this lie did not actually originate with Eve, that our first parents didn't cook it up for themselves. It came from another creature. Is that right?
2: Yes, and in fact, it's important because getting clear about the source of Adam and Eve's temptation is crucial if we're to avoid making certain mistakes about creation and about God. Mm. Temptation came from outside humanity. Adam and Eve were not created with some fatal flaw that led them inevitably to doubt God and his word. As Mm. Blochet says... The tempter's presence brings out clearly the truth that sin is foreign to mankind's being. It comes, in some sense, from outside. Mm -hmm. We were created good and only became bad at the behest of another. Blochet then adds, Suggested by the other, sin is clearly alienation for mankind it is captivity under an inhuman principle, a parasitic infection. As long as we are sinners, Paul, we are not what God created us to be.
1: Well, that raises an interesting question in my mind. I mean, what does it mean to say we were created good, as Blochet wants to, or writes, I mean, if we had the capacity to become bad, as you say, at the behest of another, doesn't this mean that we were fundamentally flawed at creation? No. Huh.
2: Interestingly enough, it means exactly the opposite.
1: All right, go on. It
2: means that Adam and Eve were genuinely free. They were created as genuinely free to choose whether they would love and obey their creator. All right, that's helpful. And that genuine freedom was part of their being created good. Mm-hmm. As Augustine put it, a person with free will who chooses wrongly is still better or more valuable than a creature that can't choose at all. Their freedom shows that they weren't puppets who had to do
1: God's will. That's great. Yeah, thanks for that quote from Augustine, too.
2: It's also important to remember, Paul, that Adam and Eve's temptation didn't come from God. Mm-hmm. As James declares, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. And yet, and yet, we also need to keep James's next verse in mind, namely, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Mm -hmm. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve, but they and not he are accountable for the fact that they fell. And their fall was not merely a product of their ignorance. They knew what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to honor God's right to command them to act in some ways and not in others and to offer themselves freely and lovingly back to their loving Lord, And yet they didn't do it.
1: Okay, but wait a minute there. So it seems like we're saying two things. Are we tempted by the devil? Or are we tempted, as James says, by our own desires? As John Murray puts
2: it, the serpent's temptation was the occasion of our first parents' fall. Mm. It wasn't its cause. The cause of their fall was their
1: own desire to be like God. Okay, fair enough. But you also seem to be arguing, Mark, that at the time of the fall, that Adam and Eve knew enough about God that they should have known better than to believe the serpent's lies. Is that right? That's right. This just struck me in the last couple of days, Paul, and I
2: think it's really quite important. Mm-hmm. Both perspectives on our creation that God has given us in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and then in Genesis 2, 4 through two twenty five, give us ample reason to believe that our first parents knew that they were creatures who were to take their lead on life from God. Okay. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 tells the story of creation from God's cosmic perspective, placing us at the apex of creation as God's final creative act. It recounts all of God's earlier creative acts, all of his making, separating, and differentiating among various things to show that God made the world to be a humanly inhabitable place. Look mm-hmm. again at Isaiah forty-five eighteen, And so just as we can be aware of the world's wonderful ordering, of the fact that the world shows every sign of being a crafted place. So Adam and Eve, not yet blinded by sin as we are, could be even more acutely aware that the world had been created for them.
1: Mm,
2: okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Immediately, immediately after he created them, we're told that God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, he gave them a command. Then he went on to tell them of his provision of food for them. I don't think, according to this account in the first chapter of Genesis, I don't think they could have been left with any question of whether he had made them, what he had made them for, of what he had made them for and of his love for them.
1: Right. So in that first narrative, you're saying Adam and Eve, just by looking at the beauty and the created order and their own personal role in it, they could have inferred God's love of them, quite an amazing love.
2: And and even even more than that, he blessed them and he spoke to them. So it wasn't just the created order of the world. It was even more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. Now, in Genesis 2, 4 through 25, the story is retold from our local perspective, where Mm -hmm. we are at the center of God's creative acts. It emphasizes our unique nature that gets its very life from the very breath, the Neshema of God. And once again, that perspective didn't leave Adam guessing about God's intentions for him. As soon as he made him, God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. We're told to tend it and watch over it. That obviously yeah. involves some instructions. Yeah, right away, right. He then went on explicitly to command Adam to eat freely of all the fruit in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he mustn't eat from because on the day that he would eat from it, he would surely die. Furthermore, Adam couldn't have had any question about God's care for him. Mm -hmm. Or after observing it's not good for the man to be alone, God promised to make a helper suitable for him. He knocks Adam out. He takes Mm -hmm. some flesh and bone from his side. He builds a woman who's just right for him and presents her to the man.
1: Yeah, that's all making a lot of sense. I mean, Adam and Eve, they would have to have had a pretty significant, profound understanding of God's love for them by making them, God making them specifically for each other, entrusting his creation to their care, and by them, him, I should say, treating each of them as persons by addressing them with his commands.
2: Right, right. Both of these perspectives in Genesis drive home that Adam and Eve knew that they were creatures, who were loved and blessed by God and created to take orders from him. Apparently, from their very first moments of self-consciousness, God was addressing them authoritatively in order to orient them.
1: Mm -hmm, That's right.
2: That was part of God's blessing, in fact, when you think about it. It was part of his gift to them. If God hadn't spoken to them, then they could have been lost in aimlessness and puzzlement. But in fact, they knew from the start what their proper orientation was to be.
1: Yeah, all great points. And then you've got this matter of the serpent, speaking to them. I mean, shouldn't that have put them on their guard? I mean, even apart from the very weird idea, (laughs) Chronicles of Narnia kind of idea of a snake speaking.
2: Yeah, that's right. Here, one of the creatures that Adam had named and whom he had not found to be an adequate match for him, is talking and acting as if he's superior to Adam and Eve, who were, of course, at the apex of God's creative acts.
1: Yeah, at a station,
2: as it were. That's right, that's right. Uh, It seems as if they should have suspected that something or someone was messing with them. Mm -hmm. God created serpents as one of the kinds of creatures that creep or crawl along the ground. They're part of the creation that he pronounced very good. So the fact that this serpent spoke in ways insinuating that God was not good signals that they were being messed with.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit bewildering, right? I mean, you've got all this fair warning. Uh, from God's prior interactions with them and everything that conveys a context about God's love. I mean, what what do you think accounts for Adam and Eve buying into the snake's lie?
2: Well, it seems to me that Eve fell by permitting herself to look at the forbidden tree from a misleading angle.
1: Hmm. Okay. She
2: saw, as the first half of verse 6 of chapter 3 of Genesis goes she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom as a person whose life depended on her maintaining her personal relationship with God mm-hmm. she had to trust him as toddlers glanced toward their mothers in order to know how they should react in unfamiliar and potentially dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. So Eve should have looked at her lord in this moment. The woman in Eden, Blochet observes, had no grounds for dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. Nothing within her should have disordered or misdirected her desire. But nevertheless, as Kidner summarizes it, she listened to a creature instead of the creator, followed her impressions instead of her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. Yeah, that's great. Great stuff. Once the serpent had dislodged her from God's perspective, the considerations she shouldn't have entertained began to press. With the only crucial consideration, trusting God, eclipsed, the trees appearing to offer food, beauty, and wisdom seemed to add up to life itself. Yet, as Kidner reminds us, our true lifeline is spiritual. And so to make the calculation that she was making, instead of obeying God and believing his word, necessarily would result in
1: death. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. It brings to mind, um, just as a parent who has had toddler children, I just appreciate your picture and the danger of Eve's action, the way that a toddler should look at a mother who's been such a giver of life and goodness to her child. My. Wife, Sue, is a great mom, and I can remember times when my toddler children, nevertheless, wanted to pull away to their detriment. We were at Walmart one time, I can remember in particular, and our three-year-old son suddenly pulled away from her grasp in a parking lot and immediately ran in front of a truck. And (laughs) Sue caught him and pulled him back to safety just in the nick of time.
2: That's exactly the sort of danger that we've got here. And it led Eve then to take some of the fruit and eat it, as we're told in the second half of verse 6 of Genesis 3. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, Hmm. and he ate it. Then we're told in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This pair who had known the joyous freedom of unabashed nakedness, that is, who had known an existence where no barrier of any kind drove a wedge between them, could no longer bear such openness. This, in fact, was the first, and not by any means the worst, of the consequences that their rebelling against God's command that they not eat from the forbidden tree produced. That prohibition had been the basis and the safeguard of the happiness of the human race. It's a dire warning for when you eat from it, you will certainly die, had underlined that. Now, now they were about to find that rebelling against God's prohibition would result in pain, Mm
1: -hmm. suffering, sickness, unhappiness, and death. It's just amazing, Mark. I mean, Mark, why would they do this? It it seems to make no sense that they would turn away from God, whom they knew was their creator and who had supplied them with every good gift.
2: (laughs) It doesn't make any sense, Paul. Right. Ultimately, we can't assign any reason why they acted as they did. Hmm. The woman, Blochet writes, had no reason to let herself be persuaded. There was no tendency in her nature that drove her on to the fatal slope. Neither did anything direct the man to his foolish acquiescence. There was no fault in his will before sin entered. Why did they yield, Blocher asks. The enigma remains total, he answers, and the evil rebellion inexcusable. Mm Mm-hmm. All we can say, Paul, is this, that our first parents' rebellion by eating from the forbidden tree was both a revolt from God's authority and a rejection of his love. And as we'll see next week, it is the source of all our
1: suffering. Well, Thanks, Mark, for taking some time to deal thoughtfully with these matters that are so foundational, so important. It's been great to have a good deep dive into some of these crucial concepts as we all, that is you and me and our hearers, our listeners today, as we continue to wrestle with the underlying problems of suffering. And we look forward to continuing that discussion next time. Thanks, Mark.
2: Thanks, Paul.
0: Through Paul and Mark's sobering discussion about the moment sin and death entered the world, we poignantly see how believing lies about God can warp our entire perspective about life. The serpent sowed doubt into Eve's mind about who God was, and she bought into those lies, leading to disaster. Through this account in Genesis 3, we do well to remember that God does not tempt us, but rather that we are tempted by our own sinful and selfish desires. Yet as toddlers look to their parents for direction, in our moments of temptation, we should look to Christ for help and guidance. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at Info at when the stars We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. <laughs>